Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, March 31st, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film writer BJ Colangelo. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show, BJ. It's been a little bit since I've had you on here, but there are a couple stories that I thought you would be particularly well-suited to discuss with me today. So uh, let's get right into the news. There's only three stories to talk about today. The first one is about a new movie called Project Artemis, which Jason Bateman is going to be directing and is going to star Chris Evans and Scarlett Johansson, the uh, old Avengers pals who have been in uh, multiple movies together at this point. Uh, This movie costs $100 million. Uh, Apple TV Plus picked it up uh, hot off the heels of their Best Picture win for CODA. And we don't really know much about Project Artemis right now. We know that uh, Deadline says that it is, quote, set against the space race. And that's kind of it in terms of like the the actual plot mechanics of what we're dealing with here. Um, There evidently was a real life uh, Project Artemis that involves uh, getting people to the moon uh, and establishing a a moon base so maybe it has to do uh something along those lines uh but just sort of broadly speaking here what do you think about the idea of uh of chris evans and scarlett johansson teaming up with um jason bateman behind the camera i think this is a really inspired casting and directorial decision because i think we're so used to jason bateman as kind of this comedy guy. But as we know from like Ozark, he's not like he has a pretty massive range. He can do very serious properties that have like little injected bits of levity in them. And I think that's probably a safe assumption on what the tone of this movie is going to be. Similarly with Scarlett Johansson and Chris Evans, both of them are actors who have shown that they can do really weird and interesting projects, but at the same time, they're just very likable people. Mm -hmm. And as far as this being with the space race like part of me is hoping that they're going to be playing like people who were competing against like the big government to try to make this happen maybe they're like a bunch of rich weirdos that are trying to get people on the moon <laughs> i think that would be great um sort of poking fun at you know the the elon musk of it all i think would just be really really interesting and a very new take we're in like this weird era right now where there's been so many like space movies lately yeah 
it seems like just that that pendulum of space fascination has swung and it's probably because we're doing things like hey we're sending william shatner to space because we can <laughs> yes yes yeah. slash film contributor william shatner i don't know if, right. if we talked about that on the podcast but uh we actually got him to write an article for us about <laughs> about that time that he went to space which is really freaking weird but um i will uh i will link to that in the show notes in case people happen to miss that one but uh <laughs> there's no- yet another good reason to be checking slash film.com all the time because there's always cool stuff coming on there um real quick the one other thing that i wanted to mention is that uh the screenplay for project artemis was written by rose Gilroy, who is the daughter of uh, Dan Gilroy, the writer-director of movies like Nightcrawler, and uh, uh, actress Renee Russo, which is cool. I I didn't even know that Rose Gilroy, who is an actress herself, um, was an aspiring screenwriter, so that's that's cool to see. Uh, I guess nepotism at work, you know, you could have feelings in in several different directions on that, but um, I I like that family and the the work that they've done so far, so, uh, you know, good for her. Absolutely, uh, and I mean, if you're going to be a nepotism baby, I have no issue with it as long as you just own it. I mean, it it makes sense. She's probably acquired some of that like genetic brilliance from her parents. Why not let it play out? That's great. Just, you know, own the fact that it's a little bit easier for you to get a screenplay sold to Apple TV Plus than it is for some rando in the middle of the country. Yeah, 100%. And then, um, yeah, Jason Bateman, you were talking about like, you know, him as the Ozark guy. I forgot that he won a directing Emmy for for his work on Ozark. He beat out shows like Game of Thrones and Handmaid's Mm -hmm. Tale and Succession and Killing Eve. Like these are these are big time shows um and i think i remember him being surprised about winning that but uh but yeah he's definitely like he's built up some cultural cachet in terms of his work behind the camera too so i'm excited to see it finally come together i feel like there have been several projects that have been announced he was going to make a clue remake with ryan reynolds if i remember correctly mm-hmm. um and you know just several things that have been announced in the past couple of years that just haven't come to fruition whether it's because of the pandemic or whatever but uh project artemis i mean it's got some big names attached to it so hopefully this one actually gets off the finish line um, okay so uh BJ, they're rebooting Spy Kids. And, Look, um, I'm all for it. <laughs> so you were telling me right before we started recording that you've seen all of the Spy Kids movies. And I just sort of had a feeling that, that you would be the right person to talk about this. Um, so, uh, yeah. What, first of all, before we get into the details of this reboot, what's your take on the Spy Kids movies? I assume if you've seen all of them, you at least are you at least either like it or are weirdly fascinated by it. I think weirdly fascinated is definitely the the phrase for it. But the thing that I like about the Rob Rodriguez kid side of his career is that all of them operate under kid logic. And I think the reason that people dislike the Spy Kids movies is because they're like, well, this doesn't make sense. And it's like, well, yeah, his children contributed to the storytelling of these. This is literal kid brain at work. <laughs> and I think that's what makes these movies so loved by so many people because it, like, the entire franchise is so unafraid to just throw all sense of logic out the window and fully operate in the fantastical and imaginative world of children. And I think that's what makes these films so fun. And then he's always bringing in just star-studded casts who are taking these films very seriously which I think is just outstanding. I'm not 100% sure of whether or not like we need a Spy Kids reboot because the <laughs> movies are so wonderful. But you know what? If they're going to go for it and they're going to reboot it, more power to them. I'm excited for a new generation to have Spy Kids because I don't know how many millennials are sitting down with their kids going, you know what you need to watch today? Uh, Thumbkins. We're going <laughs> to learn about Thumbkins today. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, uh, man, I, I also love that you called him Rob Rodriguez. I've never, I've literally never heard anybody call him that before, but that's awesome. Uh, I like so- to think we're like casual at this point. Like, I think like Robert Rodriguez is the one who makes like high quality award winning things. Rob Rodriguez <laughs> is dad who makes Spy Kids movies. Amazing, amazing. I, I love that distinction. Uh, but yeah, Robert Rodriguez, Rob, our old pal Rob, is uh, <laughs> is coming back, and he's going to be writing and producing and directing this movie, probably editing it, probably scoring it too because he loves doing all that probably yes definitely a a multi-hyphenate when it comes to that as well um so we don't really know if like um alexa panavega or daryl sabar are going to be coming back at all uh we don't know anything about the plot details here but um do you think that it makes sense for a spy kids reboot to hit netflix i mean i know that you know you mentioned the dad mode of robert rodriguez and he's directed you know some of those kids movies that he he's directed have been netflix originals um but do you think that like uh netflix is the right home i guess for a new version of spy kids given um you know the the breadth of options that people have in terms of streaming services or or whatever do you think that it makes sense for for it to uh, land on netflix netflix is the perfect home for it especially after how successful he was with the film we can be heroes which to me felt very much like a spiritual sibling to the spy kids movies um kids have their own sort of operation on Netflix. I don't think people realize that. Like, obviously, you have the kids account that you can have, but a lot of kids know how to operate Netflix. They know how to pick up a tablet and they know how to scroll and find what they want. And clearly, We Can Be Heroes was something that they loved. They're going to associate that same visual energy, and this is exactly where it needs to be. They know how to get there, they know how to watch it. Obviously, they're not going to have probably the same understanding as OG Spy Kids the way we did. Um, That's just not something that they would have been exposed to unless their parents have shown it to them. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like what is available to them now, this this fits perfectly. Cool. All right. So our last story of the day involves an It prequel that is in the works over at HBO Max. So this is a a prequel series to uh, Stephen King's novel um there have been two it movie well i guess actually there was an it mini series and what was that the 1990 or something like that and then Mm -hmm. uh yeah these these two mega hit it movies that have come out in the past five years or so uh andy muschietti the director of both of those two most recent films is on board to executive produce this prequel show alongside his sister and producing partner barbara muschietti and uh jason fuchs And uh, the project is apparently based on a story developed by all three collaborators with Fuchs in a writer's room currently working on the script. The show is currently titled Welcome to Dairy and will be set in the 1960s. So um, the creature, the the it creature known as it, known as Pennywise in in various different forms, uh, sort of preys on the uh, the town of Derry, Maine every 27 years. So this 60s prequel is probably going to follow the uh i guess the parents or like maybe um maybe not um the literal parents but people in the parents generation of the the losers club that uh, mm-hmm. are sort of the, the main characters from the first uh it story so as it were um what do you make of this bj i know that you're a, a big horror fan i assume you have thoughts on it and, and maybe the novel itself I do. So I'm of two minds about it. On one half, I'm very excited because I think that sort of the lore of Pennywise and the Deadlights and and, and anything that kind of falls into that realm are really interesting and they don't get explored very often. I think it's because it comes from the part of Stephen King's world that is a little bit more galaxy brained. Um, 
but the 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 history of Derry as a as a town is so rich with horrifying stories knowing that this is taking place in the 60s and that it is probably going to be roughly the the parents generation of the losers club i think we're probably going to see some stuff with the black spot bar and that is kind of terrifying and something that I think would be really interesting to see in a prequel series. Um, But at the same time, I'm also a little worried because part of the, the horror of somebody like Pennywise is the mystique is the mystery is the stuff that we don't know. Um, So I hope that it doesn't end up being too, I guess, presentational in a, in a way, but Mm -hmm. knowing who's behind it, I can't foresee that being an issue. I think really all it's going to do is just now our timeline is going to get even messier um, as we try (laughs) to keep track between the novel and the miniseries and the movies. So as long as people can kind of give their self, give themselves a little bit of suspension of disbelief, uh, and not be so like, oh, but that happened in 1957, not 1961 or whatever right. arbitrary date change that happens. Um, I think this could be something very cool. So we saw in the It movies, there were, um, I guess, old photos of Bill Skarsgård's version of Pennywise, mm-hmm. you know, in like a like an ancient looking circus or something, you know, these sort of like implying that he's been in this town for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no indication right now about whether or not Bill Skarsgård is going to come back to reprise this role for the show. And I'm curious what you think about that, because like you're saying, like Pennywise, the the iconography of Pennywise is so strong. And like the um, the uh, part of the effectiveness is the character of the character is that that sort of uh, once every generation kind of return kind of vibe. And I, I do wonder if... Um, you know, from a from a corporate IP level, of course, it seems like Warner Brothers and, and HBO Max want to wring as much out of that as possible. But I also wonder if they are cognizant of the idea of maybe maybe watering down some of the effectiveness there. So I guess this is a long way of saying, do you think that if Bill Skarsgård does not come back for this, that they, they may just like lean into that and have um, this version of it in the 1960s? take on a totally different form or do you think that they're going to do whatever they can, you know, back up a, a Brinks truck uh, onto Bill Skarsgård's front yard and just dump a, bump, you know, a ton of money out uh, to try <laughs> to um, lure him to come back? I think that it would be really fascinating if he did not come back and we were seeing the different forms of, of this it, of the titular it, because we know that Pennywise is not his only form. However, from a business standpoint, I feel like that would be a huge mistake. And I feel like they really need to do something at minimum to incorporate the form of Bill Skarsgård's Pennywise because the iconography is so undeniable. I I know we were talking about this, uh, you know, in, in our work slack that when I was an elementary school teacher, I had kindergartners who knew who Pennywise was and did his dance. They loved him. It like his that is so pop, wild. It's so wild. But like his popularity is truly kind of unmatched. And I think to have a show and not at least touch on that, even if it's just a cameo where we for the most part, we see it in all of these different forms. And then, you know, maybe it ends with us getting to see Pennywise, or maybe it's introduced with us getting to see Pennywise. Mm -hmm. I think there needs to be that bit of a transitionary buffer to get people who are super into the into the movies that may not have the novel history or are not as attached to it you kind of need the clown to be the transitionary person into this series, into this 
bigger picture story. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So um, one more thing before we go, you mentioned uh, Stephen King's sort of galaxy brained um, takes, I guess, when it comes to the world (laughs) of it. And I read the novel, I've only read it once, but I read it in the lead up to the first movie. So what was that 2017 or something, which geez, that was like five years ago or something now, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of wild to think about. But um, I, I remember really loving the the back end of the, the, you know, sort of the last part of that novel where it just really goes off the rails and uh, gets into, like you're mentioning, the deadlights and the sort of um, weird nether zone. And like, you know, there, there's all sorts of like time and space stretches and compresses in bizarre ways. Now that it is uh, theoretically heading to a streaming service in a, in a show format, assuming that everything actually goes as planned here, um, do you think the idea of um, I guess m- jumping jumping over into this form and having more time in a show to be able to explore characters and explore this uh, mythology and lore a little bit. Do you think that this show will actually get into that sort of galaxy brain stuff in a way that the movies just simply didn't have time to do? I hope that it does. I think that the the one complaint that I ever have about adaptations of King's work is that so much greatness has to be left out of the story for either simplicity's sake of an audience consuming it or just time. I mean, in in both iterations of the story that we've seen so far between the miniseries and the two movies, they're both roughly a little over like four hours. Like it's it, it's a lot of time and there's still so much story that hasn't been tapped into. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that with having the HBO series that we're going to get our hour long episodes that we're going to get, you know, what is the average for them? Like 10. So we'll have 10, 10 hours each season to really explore there. There's such a rich history of terror in dairy. And yeah, there's even the big galaxy brain stuff where we're dealing with time and space. I think that it would be wise to explore that because it's all connected. Yeah, I would love that. I would love to see maybe like in that sort of um, time and space uh, maneuvering, maybe like you could actually, there's a way to to incorporate some of the the Losers Club, uh, whether or not it's pr- probably the kids doesn't make any sense to do because they've they've aged out mm-hmm. of uh, of the look that they had in 2017 or whatever, mm-hmm. um, but maybe get some of the adult cast back or something in, I don't know, in, in uh, weird flashbacks, flash forwards, flash sideways is whatever you want to do with the, the way that time can sort of be manipulated in that way. Um, it seems like there's a lot of uh, potential there for like a really cool thing. I, this doesn't strike me as like, Oh God, another Stephen King adaptation. I'm just going to roll my eyes, which, you know, in the wake of the success of the first it from 2017, there were so many Stephen King mm-hmm. projects that were mm-hmm. announced that it's some of those sort of felt that way. And I think maybe because, of the strength of how good that first movie especially was. I think it, chapter two was not quite as successful personally, um, but you know, uh, creatively, not, not necessarily financially. I don't have those numbers in front of me, but um, the idea that this is more of the same, like, and, and the same creative folks are, are responsible for this. Um, I feel like there's a lot of potential here for this to actually be like a really cool thing instead of just like, Oh God, you know, another one of those. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I agree with you in terms of the films too. And I just think that, it's just always more interesting to see the kids fight it because it, it feels more like an underdog story. And there are so many underdog stories in the history of dairy. And if they can tap into that, then, you know, that's a license to print money. 
Yeah, love it. Okay, cool. All right, well, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.